When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. All rise. Welcome to the Cyber Law and Business Report. Get the top story on the hot button internet legal topics of the day. This is your home for the latest on internet law and policy. Hear the latest net trends impacting business and have your questions answered right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report. Now, please welcome your host, the founder of the Internet Law Center, Bennett Kelly. Good morning, this is Bennett Kelly, and welcome to another edition of Cyberlawn Business Report, broadcasting live from the Internet Law Center in downtown Santa Monica, the heart of Silicon Beach. You can check us out on the web at internetlawcenter.net. And from time to time, we do special editions that are off topic, in addition to our author series in connection with the Miami Book Fair that will begin shortly again. In November, we'll be commemorating the centennial of the armistice from World War I, a war that helped shape the United States' identity, and its impact is still being felt today. Today is the centennial of the last major offensive of the war that helped bring it to an end, but at a steep price. 117,000 casualties and over 26,000 Americans were killed in that battle, including my great-uncle Thomas Kelly. So joining us today is Jonathan Casey, the Director of, of Archives in the Edward Jones Research Center at the National World War I Museum and Memorial in Kansas City. And as usual, you can find our show notes at cyberlawradio.wordpress.com and follow us on Twitter at CyberLawRadio. So, um, Mr. Casey, thank you for joining us. Yes, thank you. Um, you're welcome. And... Um, so I, I guess, like any story, we should begin at the beginning, but um, maybe let's start with the, the whole – the story of World War One has many layers, but as right. does the story of your, your museum, and, and let's why don't, why don't we start there. Um, tell us okay. how the World War One Museum came about, and, and particularly why it's in Kansas City. Um, yes, it's a layered story. Um, it started right at the uh, as the armistice was happening in November 1918, and there was an um, editorial in one of the papers saying that Kansas City should build a memorial to those who served and, of course, sacrificed. Uh, and it was meant for Kansas City Missourians, but by, by extension more than that. But um, this was in the paper, and people got the idea going. And there were meetings right after the armistice, which was November 11th, civic meetings, civic leaders, business leaders got together, and we had some public meetings and discussed what kind of memorial, what should be done. Uh, And eventually the idea came about to have a memorial itself, a structure uh, memorializing the event, also a museum building, something practical in nature, 
where, where people could come and look at uh, objects and things and look at what the soldiers had and what and so forth so they could learn from it so um this was uh, voted on. Uh, there was just a, a kind of a citywide uh, ballot on this, and people said, yeah, they want a memorial in a museum. Then they went into the public public subscription phase, which was in 1919, which they um, raised money, and they based this on um, the Liberty Loan campaigns uh, where people would go out into neighborhoods and, and um, ask people to donate uh, money toward Liberty Loans. So they had this subscription, and they within like uh, 10 days they raised over two million dollars, uh, and and uh, two million for the structure itself, and about half a million for um, other um, causes that were related to the war to, for, to help um, pay off debts of organizations that had supported the war. Uh, so they had this large amount of money in about 10 days' time, which is I don't know today's like 40 million or something, wow. and. Um, and then and like 80,000 some people contributed and we have these cards in our archives that are just uh just cardboard just cards that have uh how much you're going to donate and you know the address all pre-printed cards and thousands of these things and they they've been uh, scanned so they're digitized uh but people give whatever amount could be a dollar or could be $5 or whatever so um they raised this money and there was an architectural co- competition uh, in 21 or so through in that time, and then there was I was um, uh, architects were invited who were interested who in in doing memorials. People who were architects uh, for that kind of architecture, uh, memorials and monumental buildings and things, public buildings. And um, uh, architect named Harold Van Buren McGonagall won this competition, and uh, he. Um, so he went ahead and um, it, the construction on it was uh, started about 1923 and uh, there was a, a cornerstone ceremony and these different ceremonies uh, and, then, and then it opened up in 26, <clears throat> excuse me. Um, I will say in 1921 the site dedication uh, happened here where General John Pershing, who was from McLean, Missouri, which is not far from Kansas City, he and four other commanders representing the the allies of the British and the French, the Belgians, the Italians, were here for the uh, third annual American Legion convention. The American Legion started in World War One, and they were here in Kansas City the end of October, 1st of November of 1921. They dedicated the site to about 100,000 people, the largest crowd at the time in Kansas City, and it was across from the Union Station, uh, the train station here in Kansas City, one of the biggest in the country. So they had the site dedication. There was um, like a cornerstone dedication. Then there was in 1926, uh, President Coolidge was here to dedicate the memorial, the structure itself. It was That's when it opened to the public. And uh, he was president of the United States and um, and sort of brought his, uh, he said, the authority of the federal government to make it the national memorial and monument and so forth to the war. So we got started by a big civic in, uh, effort and a ground a grassroots campaign effort and all that to build this. And um, there was uh, the museum itself, uh, and with the objects in it for, from the a lot from the from veterans from the area, but also some from uh, foreign governments. And then there was a building uh, that was sort of meant as meeting a meeting hall for uh, the Liberty Memorial Association, the organization that was formed to create the memorial and also for veterans organizations like American Legion or whatever, Veterans of Foreign Wars. So there was uh, two, these two buildings, the tower itself and the um, 
courtyard and all the whole structure itself. And then over the years, there was the landscaping and everything, uh, and a sculptural frieze, which is um, a kind of a bas-relief frieze that's on the north wall facing Union Station. That's one of the biggest anywhere, and that's a lot of symbolic about um, a lot of symbolism in it about the um, going from war to peace uh, and the various. Um, uh, figures in that and and uh, different references to the Bible uh, and uh, uh, quotations from the Bible and from other sources. So there's a whole lot of things going on, a lot of symbolic architecture here uh, within the whole structure. Uh, and that just went on to itself and, and went um, and from the 20s and the 30s and so forth and went on. But then um, you know things changed as we had the Second World War uh, just 20 years after the First World War. And then sort of things... Um, uh, the, the structure itself, in a way, was still was still vibrant. It still had ceremonies. It still had a purpose, and people would still visit. But it kind of lost uh, some of it, um, some of its stature, I think, because of the Second World War, and then how just things changed over time. Uh, and um, it it was going, it was having some financial trouble, and eventually the city took it over. It was a private uh, operation originally, and then the city of Kansas City, Missouri, took it over, and uh, eventually. Uh, Staff was hired, professional staff, uh, a curatorial staff, to um, to help uh, to do work with the collection and to create exhibitions and um, and to do things at a in a proper museum. And it's it it had to close for years. It was closed in the 90s because of structural deterioration. Then there was a sales tax passed, another grassroots effort in a way to uh, renovate it, and it, and it came back in 2002. And since then, it's um, really expanded, and we. Uh, have a um, something like a 35,000 square foot museum space as the main gallery, and then we have other spaces, and we've just opened a gallery this year, uh, about a 3,000 square foot gallery, and so uh, we're, really it's it's grown quite a bit, and I've been here some time uh, and seen a lot of changes in it, and it's now a truly um, besides national but international museum. And uh, telling the story, not just of the Americans, uh, what America did in the war, but uh, everybody as much as possible, um, both sides of the conflict, and um, what their contributions were, and telling it through stories as much as possible, just of the average, uh, the average soldier, or the average um, factory worker, you know, involved in the in the war effort. So. Sure. Um, that's so, a lot uh, there. I know it's a it's a long story. You know, yeah. So a, so a lot of a lot of people when they get a, a novel or, or they they sometimes peek at the ending, and uh, <laughs> so we're we're yeah. gonna take a quick peek at the ending since it's yeah. coming up soon. Um, the war famously ended on the eleventh hour of the eleventh day of the eleventh month, yeah. and so you have the centennial of the the armistice coming up on November eleventh. Uh, w- what does the museum have planned? Um, a number of things, and it's sort of based on our uh, regular ceremony that we have, but of course it's a special one this year, being the 100th anniversary, uh, and uh, we'll have, uh, it's an international ceremony, we'll have uh, our speakers um, um, who represent uh, different countries who are involved in the war, we'll have um, uh, political speakers from, from the Kansas City area, from Missouri, um, there's going to be a wreath laying ceremony, and that's going to represent um, the, um, uh, the those who sacrificed, and uh, and the, and from all over the world. Uh, so not just not just focusing on the United States, and and um, 
there will be bells, a uh, sermon about bells, because when the armistice was declared, it was celebratory. I mean, this thing finally got over with after four years, you know, four and a half years. So there would be a bell, um, bells of right. peace, we're calling it. So there will be uh, that part of the ceremony. There's always the, uh, we'll have our Walk of Honor dedication, which is our granite bricks that are inscribed and um, that people purchase and in, in memory of somebody, either from the war, could be from any war, and we'll have a ceremony with that for the installation of the bricks, um, and uh, some readings from um, those who were involved at the time. Um, again, whether it could be a soldier reading something, his response to the armistice, or it could be um, a nurse, or it could be somebody not in the military, somebody in political life, you know, or somebody uh, well known. Uh, reading uh, uh, something from that person's experience and that person's uh, recollection of, of uh, the armistice and experiencing it. Um, so, Obviously, and, this would not be real veterans since the last one died in 2011. No, yeah, yeah. Frank Buckles, who died in 2011, no. And, and it's been, obviously, it's it's called Veterans Day. I mean, it's been Veterans Day... Um, for a while, yeah. Uh, you know, for since the 50s, and that was actually was in October, and then they did make an adjustment some time ago. The government changed it to November 11th because it's the symbolism of it. But we're, I think we're going to call it more of a more just Armistice Day, at least for this year, because it is the centennial. It's special. So we're going to focus more on the origin of it and that it came where it came from and we're the National Museum for that conflict so we're, you know, we're the representative of it, and um, um, so it's it's sort of the general. You always got to have sort of basic um, elements to a, a sure. ceremony, you know, you know what I mean. But it's would be a special, special thing. And um, there's often poppies associated with um, World War poppies. One commemoration. Why is that? Yes. It's a poppy. The poppy is an iconic symbol of the war, of the loss of the war, and also then the rebirth. You know, this, these poppies are these flowers that grew all over um, Belgium and France, northern France is what we're talking about geographically, in Flanders. So right. there's a poem written, written Flanders in, Fields. Yeah. in Flanders Fields by Lieutenant Colonel John McRae, who was a Canadian physician serving with the Canadian Army in France, and he wrote it for a, a fellow officer who had died uh, then in 1915 and was part of the eulogy, and he read this poem and uh, it was published then, but didn't get a whole lot of attention. I mean, the war was still, it was really cranking up then. This was like, I think this was in the spring of 15 that he died. So the war was just almost getting started, how terrible it became. So um, anyway, it got, it got the attention after the war. He died, McCray died in January of 1918 of pneumonia. Oh. So he did not survive the war even. He would died in service. And then after the war, it was picked up. Um, just as the symbol um, here, um, I can't think of the woman's name offhand, but there was a woman in particular who was promoting it, who read the poem in, I think, in Collier's magazine. And she was so inspired, she went out and bought poppies from a floor, you know, started handing them out and all this. And then she kind of led the effort about making it the symbol. But it, it was picked up as a symbol with uh, Britain and France. Of course, McCray was Canadian. I mean, Britain and, and Canada, but also. Uh, so in Flanders Field was the poem. Sure. Uh, and it talks about the poppies uh, blowing in the wind, the crosses row on row, the crosses of the dead, and then the poppies. So it's known here, you know, we've called it, of course, Veterans Day or Armistice Day, but in Britain, Canada, it's Remembrance Day. Right. And that, that's a big thing. And um, we do have a good representation of poppies here. Uh, when you come to the museum, 
you have to cross over this chasm. You cross over on a glass bridge um, and into the main gallery, so into the whole story of the war. You have to cross a field of poppies, 9,000 poppies that represent 9 million combatant deaths. Wow. 9 million, that's kind of the figure you always see about those who actually were involved in the fighting, 9 million, so it doesn't include civilians. Uh, which are several you know, million, I don't know, five million or something, but you cross over this poppy field and then you have to cross over it again to leave the main gallery. So you're kind of thinking, what is this about? Right. You know, what does this poppy mean? And, you, and, you, and then you find out, or you, you kind of know, actually, that you can, the volunteers will tell you, you know, the symbolism, but then you go through and, and you look at all the scenes of destruction and the, and the uh, sacrifice, you know? My, um, my wife so, is Canadian and, oh, yeah. and it struck me, you know, and I'm gonna, we'll get into this in a minute because you know there, there really are two wars. Is the the from the from the European perspective, it's, it's a war that begins in 1914 and and yeah. goes on. And yeah. then, but for American experience, experience, it's just a brief period, 1917, 1918, that we're involved. Yeah. yeah. But um, but it, I remember the first time going to visit her family, and I was at some dinner with her aunts and uncles and. I'm sorry, I just bumped the mic. Um, and um, everyone there could recite the poem on Flanders yeah. Field. Yeah, and, yeah, uh, that, and, yeah. and, and it just struck me how you know, how much this was part of the psyche and how that was much more yeah. important for in their history and how it's taught, whereas in our history, we, we covered right. a little bit and then, boom, let's jump into World War II yeah. because you know, that's the... Yeah. That's the big story the of big you know, American heroism and you know saving yeah. the world, but you know, and but it also made did so here in World War One. Um, so yeah, it did strike me, and uh, um, hmm. and it, yeah. it is a moving poem too. Um, we shall not well, sleep it. though poppies grow in Flanders fields, and right. uh, so um, so let's talk about the the two wars you know the war it starts in 1914 famously after the assassination of the archduke um right from ferdinand and of uh, of austria hungary and uh to get even more complicated complicated he was killed in bosnia by a serbian yeah. nationalist yeah. And then through these this whole link of alliances, um, next thing you know, the, the entire all the European empires are are at war. Right, right, yeah, um, yeah. It's and some people, um, you know, it's hard to understand that. I mean, it's it's uh, how all this could happen from that thing. But um, there was um, a lot of tension um, before the war, and just and and there was. Um, you read about the different themes. I mean, the arms race, uh, the naval arms race specifically that you could read about between Germany and Britain and who was going to have a bigger navy, more powerful navy, because that was uh, – a navy meant that you were a global power. You know, you right. could go anywhere in the world. And um, the, the these countries, Britain, France, Germany, and some others to some extent had these maritime empires, these global empires that – stretched the world and they had colonies, you know, these different continents. And that was a sign of power and prestige, you know, a sign of national prestige to have these colonies. And um, also it's economic, economic reasons and resources from these colonies. But it was, um, it, it was just uh, all together. And, and so um, th this was a, a sign of power. And um, the, there had been issues, there had been 
between France and Germany, there had been a lot of uh, tension, a lot of animosity uh, going back hundreds of years uh, over these different conflicts that they had. There was between France and Britain even. It's sort of, it's kind of, it's very complicated. Uh, Russia was part of it because Russia was wanting, they were always enlarging their territory and they were always trying to project their power into Europe. Russia was kind of different. They're sort of on the outside, but they're also a part of Europe and want to be involved in that. And they had, um, um, they were joined with France because France needed an alliance with Russia. This was before the war. This was in the 1890s because France had been defeated by Germany in, in the Franco-Prussian War, and then France lost territory, and then France needed some allies. And, you know, all these alliances, all this was developing for the years before the war. Uh, and then um, there was all this trouble. They say in the Balkans, there was a saying about the war, uh, the war would start there because there was all this the, the the tensions in these Balkan states that you mentioned them like Serbia, Bosnia, Croatia, and those states. And, in um, fact, you know, Bismarck had predicted that in yeah, 1888. He said, he said if there's right. going to be, it's, it's going to happen there. Um, we're going to have to take a short break. We come back. Sure. We'll jump right into the war and sure. and what it meant um, for the United States and for the other countries. Um, yeah. You're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyber Law and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Are you looking for the best in WordPress speed, security, and scalability? WP Engine is a digital experience platform for WordPress, powering digital experiences for large brands around the world. With easy-to-use site management tools and powerful do-it-your-way development features, WP Engine gives you the flexibility to build it your way. Improve your SEO and conversion rates with a faster site on WP Engine. Learn more on WPEngine.com. Do you look at the task of ranking your site at the top of the search engines like you would climbing the top of Mount Everest? It doesn't have to be. TopSEOs.com knows how hard that climb can be, and they can make top ranking a reality. Top SEOs send you to only the right search vendors and agencies that they know will work for you. Since 2002, TopSEOs.com has reviewed and researched the best search engine marketing agencies and solutions providers. Don't risk the cost of falling off the proverbial peak of search rankings. Let Top SEOs give you peace of mind. TopSEOs.com, the independent authority on search vendors. It's time once again to get ready for the 35th Annual Miami Book Fair. November 11th to the 18th. Learn more at MiamiBookFair.com. Over 500 authors will be coming in from all over the world to read their books, answer questions from the audience, and sign autographs. Award-winning luminaries confirmed to attend this year include novelists like Elliot Ackerman, Robert Olin Butler, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, and Deborah Dean. Nonfiction writers like Dr. Mark Agronin, Mohammed Al-Samwawi, Andrea Barnett, and Tina Brown. Celebrities like Justine Bateman, Steve Kornacki, Bill Press. These are just a few of the confirmed 500 authors scheduled to appear at the 2018 Miami Book Fair, November 11th to the 18th. Check out the full schedule of events right now at MiamiBookFair.com. That's MiamiBookFair.com. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. 
And we're back and we're talking about World War One with Jonathan Casey. He's the director of archives in the Edward Jones Research Center at the National World War One Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri. It is Missouri, right? Where you're on the Kansas it side. Is. It yeah, is okay. very, yeah. Thanks for saying that. <laughs> just want to be careful. Don't want to offend yeah. anybody. Um, uh, well, yeah. yeah. So let, let's kind of just do a snapshot. Um, at the start of World War I, um, it, it wouldn't be hard for, for people to imagine today, but the United States was not exactly a superpower. In fact, I think there was, I saw some statistic of the – we had the 17th largest military at the start of the war behind Serbia. Um, when we entered the war, I saw some statistic that um, we had a total of 55 planes and f- 51 of them weren't functioning. <laughs> I mean, yeah, it, you yeah, know, it's, yeah. it, it's kind of yeah. you know, not to say Keystone Cops, but um, yeah. you know, we weren't exactly well, there was this arms race going on in Europe. We, we weren't exactly part of that party. No, no. No, we were yeah, had a real small military establishment. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> Sorry, excuse me. Um, yeah, it it just um, it was small because we didn't feel that we needed it. I mean, traditionally we always had a small establishment unless we had a big war like the Civil War. So you know, we because we had two oceans exactly. Us. So we had it. We had one of the largest navies. We had a, a, a big navy. I mean, and we had um, the Panama Canal open just just as the war got started. It opened, I think, in October 14. Um, so, um, you know, that was a way of facilitating uh, to move a fleet from one ocean to the other ocean, you know, back and forth. So there was, we were aware of things strategically. We were aware of the situation in Europe where it wasn't like we were isolated in our thinking or anything. It was just, uh, it was just we didn't feel the need for it. Now, we ended up supplying lots of whatever, uh, to the Allies. I mean, they came over here, purchase agents, and bought lots of stuff, a lot of uh, gunpowder, you know, a lot of munitions, uh, mules, specifically, I'm going to say mules because a lot came from Missouri, but a lot of you know, animal <laughs> power, transport, and so a lot of everything, but um, um, a lot of ammunition and things, and, and, and so we were involved, and in, even though as a neutral, we were, our companies were selling it, you know, we were making money, so um you know, we were, that's true, that's the situation, but we didn't, so we were small in the military establishment because we didn't feel the need for anything more than what we had. So, right. um, let me just jump, jump know, forward a little bit. Yeah, go ahead. Um, yeah. So, you have these, you know, we're a relatively young country. So, by you know, yeah. 1914, yeah. you know, we were uh, about 150 years old as a country. Uh, and, and maybe just through the Spanish American War that it concluded, you know, a generation earlier. Are, are yeah. starting to you know see ourselves at the world stage. Um, also, at this time, we're a country of immigrants. I think at this point, one third of yeah. the population was either yeah. an immigrant or first generation American. Yeah. Um, and what you see, and this also plays out in Canada, Australia, New Zealand, um, that this war has an effect of um, defining nationhood for those countries. You know, Canada right. wins right. a decisive battle. You know, right. Canadian troops win the decisive battle in, in 1918, and it's really heralded as a defining point in Canadian identity. Right. Um, right. You have the the tragedy of the the failed um, assault at Gallipoli, um, right. which Churchill was behind, um, right. and 
you know, that becomes a, a defining moment for the Australian and New Zealand troops who um, really led that effort. And, right, and, right. And then, for, in a sense, for the United States, you have it's just by, by the time they got brought into the war, and we'll get into that in a minute, um, you know, this, they pulled together this disparate forces of you right. know, people from all over the world. And I, I, I saw one commentator say that you know, this is when um, the, we went from being you know, Italian-American, Irish-Americans, Chinese-Americans to Americans. You know, it, it, it removed right. the hyphen from American right. identity. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, that, um, I mean, that's, that is true. Um, you know, it... it um, um, you know, we how we saw our place in the world. Uh, you know, I think it's kind of as a refuge for a lot of people. And this, and we were, you know, a young country, relatively young and growing, and um, um, we had a lot of power. You know, with our uh, our natural resources, even in our growing population and industrialization, and um, we, you know, but we were cons- we were uh, focused more on developing us. You know, throughout the 19th century, really developing the interior and developing creating this country, this manifest destiny. And you mentioned Spanish-American War. We had reached out, you know, for various reasons anyway, thought it was necessary to get involved in that. So we did have overseas possessions. So we did have some something of our own maritime empire, actually. And I mentioned that with the, the European powers. Right. And, you know, we had to... So that was another reason to create this this power, this naval power, though, back to that, and Teddy Roosevelt was instrumental in that because he was real big on naval power. That a book um, about naval powers that was published by a, a, a Naval Academy instructor was very influential on his thinking. So we, that was something that was he was focused on, and I mentioned the Panama Canal and everything. Um, you know, and and um, it's um, so you know we weren't a superpower. We weren't even really necessarily interested in being that, but it was something we were we were engaged with the world, um, you know, and economically and, um, we were, uh, we were, we were involved, but just still kind of coming out of what our, our focus had been just internally. Um, and then, um, you know, with this, this war came out and uh, happened in this and how things developed. And there was a lot of debate about why should we get into the war? You know, it's not our business. Right. Uh, and, and, you know, what, what let them fight it out. No one thought it was going to last as long as it did anyway. You know, really, that's what, the, cause that's what the politicians and the military leaders, most of them, were telling the people, you know, well, this we're going to win. Our side's going to win. And, you know, they always say six weeks or by Christmas or something. Right. You know, we're, we're going to get this thing done with. The the businessmen and the economists, these people are saying, well, dude, you know, if it did last longer, and that's going to bankrupt us. We can't run this thing longer. We're going to run out of money. <laughs> I mean, we're not. It's not going to work. I mean, they, no one had any idea, except there were there were a few, but no one, I think, had any idea really how big it could get or long. But there was a few, and a particular name was Kitchener. You may know that name, who was the British Secretary of War, who was this this very well known, this famous British soldier had fought all over in the British Empire, all places, and was just, the, was just like this iconic British um, officer, uh, Horatio Kitchener, and uh, he, he had an inkling that something, it was going to be bigger than that. He, that's the one person that I'm aware of that really kind of understood it uh, and said, you know, we've got to create a huge army. Britain was kind of like us, where they had a small professional army, 
and they but they increased it because they relied on their navy kind of like we would but they he said we're going to need a lot more people in this this is going to take a long time so they started um, a lot of, of effort on volunteers and and they didn't want to use conscription that was always a dicey thing in britain and it was very it never happened in australia canada did to some extent but um you know they, it was these armies but they were again this it was kind of like a european a continental uh, war between france and germany primarily Right, that we, um, that we then, weren't really and, invited to. Yeah, well, that we wanted to stay out of. But in yeah. Wilson, President Wilson said, "Well, I'm going to stay out of this." He ran. They, you know, his 1916 election was he. He he said he wouldn't get involved. He ran on a peace pl- platform, and he was just trying to, trying to, you know, try to. He could do what he could do to negotiate something. If he could help out, arbitrate some final decision, he'd want to do that. But he didn't want to get in the war. He was really. Um, it just wasn't. Uh, to him, I think it was just something that he didn't think America should be involved in. Uh, there were people from the start, like Teddy Roosevelt, said, "Yeah, we got to get into it. We got to get in the fight, and you know, we got to prove to people that you know we're that well, we're manly and all. So you know, we're going to get right. in and we're going to make a difference." Uh, but Wilson ran on peace. He, he kept us out of the war with the slogans and all that. Um, and uh, there was a large population. You mentioned immigrants. There was a lot of German. Uh, German Americans, people in Germany, especially in, in the U.S. Was yeah, Germans, yeah. especially in the mid in the Midwest. Right. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. There's a lot of Irish, more so I would say in the in the urban areas. So there's a lot of Irish who were anti-British, you know, who had come over here starting in the 1840s with the potato famine and had. Um, so they didn't. There was an issue with them, and that was a lot of Democratic voters were these groups, and um, you know, again Wilson. Um, but I don't want to. I don't know that much about his decision making, so I don't get in that. But there was in his cabinet and everything. There was dissension, you know, to get in or not sure. to get in. And eventually, these certain things happened that he said, "No, we've got to do this. It's the moral thing to do. That you know, I'm, we're going to fight the war." Then you hear things about to make the world safe for democracy. You hear a, a phrase like that, you know, right. things like so. so let's let, idealize let's, it. Yeah. Let's step back a minute. So the the war starts and Germany goes on the offensive. They invade Belgium. Yeah. Yeah. And, and and just you know destroy wholesale destroy towns along the yeah. way and yeah. which causes a, a great moral outrage and right. and they they start advancing in Paris and their whole plan as you mentioned was that this this is going to be a matter of weeks yeah. and that yeah. you know, just to reach Paris quickly and that would be the end of the war yeah. um, and they almost succeeded they came within like I read something yeah. they came within thirty kilometers of Notre Dame yeah. the cathedral yeah. in, in Paris. And yeah. and they were stopped at the Marne River and uh, right. and then became a, a three or four year stalemate um, at there where they both just dug into and started building yeah. this network of trenches that yeah. spanned you know four hundred miles and, and yeah. so you know, yes it, it almost was quick but then the, yeah. the, then you saw this this kind of new kind of warfare this trench warfare. Right. Um, right. and, and so, well, while, go ahead. No, well, I was going to say, yeah, and that's the general idea. It was a war of movement in the first few months, and then it got bogged down um, because of just uh, the the weapons and the enormity of the armies and trying to squeeze a whole bunch of people into a fairly small space. And you got machine guns going off everywhere and heavy artillery and, you know, people trying to scramble for cover. So then they right in the trenches, and then they this no-man's land came about. Um, and that's also there's you think about the Eastern Front, it's a similar situation, but 
um, a lot of fighting on the eastern front and other fronts, you know, and that we, we focus on the western because that's where America right. much did its part. And we think about it because we think of France and we think of Britain and so forth. Uh, and um, But there was lots of this going on in the east between Russia and Germany and Russia and Austria-Hungary. And then eventually Italians joined in 1915. Uh, and there's a lot of fighting in the mountains. I mean, some it's unbelievable, you know, the terrain the, in the Dolomites and everything and what was going on. And then those um, battles in but, Africa. Well, you know, God, Africa, the, the yeah. various possessions and in the Middle yeah. East. In the Middle East, and then between the Ottoman Turks fighting, yeah. yeah, with the British and with the Arabs, and the um, all the just obviously there's a world war and everywhere, and in the Far East, uh, Japan was an ally. And Japan uh, attacked uh, the German possessions in China, uh, and and seized those, and then that just that's for another discussion about future of Japan's um, um, what aggrandizement in Japan's enlarging their territory, right. um, and what what became their then what they did to the later on in the in the Far East during the 20s and the 30s, especially, and then the leading up to World War II, leading up to Pearl Harbor. So. Um, and then the Polynesia, the islands and everything, that all these different countries had islands in the Pacific, including us, with the Philippines and Samoa and everything. So That's um, why it was, it's called, you know, a lot of people call it the Great War, but it's also called, and Germans start calling it a World War because of its reach. It was a global yeah. war, multiple continents. Yeah, yeah. Now, it, was, it was different names, yeah. Go ahead. So yeah. Wilson gets reelected in 1916 narrowly, you know, not by much. Right. Um, yeah. In fact, I looked at the results. Um, California, he won by about 4,000 votes. Uh, and yeah. had California go, gone the other way, he would have lost. Yeah. Um, yeah. And, and so um, so he barely wins on the slogan of he kept us out of war. Right. And So that's November 1916. And by yeah. spring, or was it February or spring uh, 1917, we're declaring war against Germany. How, how did that? How do we get such a dramatic reversal? Yeah. Um, well, there. Like I said, there was a lot of talk um, to go into the war. I mean, there was a camp, you know, saying just let's get into the war. And there was we were getting prepared for the war. Uh, uh, when I say camp, and I mean just like a, you know a group of certain political leaders or people, business interests, saying you know we should really get into the war but there's when i say camp also i think of the preparedness movement and uh start in plattsburgh new york uh, and i think also in california but um the preparedness movement that was started in 1915 because these um these army officers uh and and um there were civilians um who were who were concerned about what what might happen that we may be getting to this war uh, and we just don't have the prepared, don't have the military establishment for it. We need to right. start training officers and all that. So that's the Plattsburgh movement, what it's called of, um, for Plattsburgh, New York. And that's that's um, that's kind of one of the things going on. Another thing that happened in 1915 was the uh, sinking of the uh, big uh, uh, ocean liner, the Lusitania. Right. The uh, was a White Star, uh, the Lusitania. Line that was carrying it's you know they said this a large amount a of neutral, <laughs> yeah yeah they was the British said it was just a neutral ship and we're just carrying people uh, to Britain it left New York and was heading for I believe it was Liverpool or Southampton and anyway it was sunk off of Ireland by a German submarine 
So they torpedoed thing and sank in like 20 minutes, and there were some famous people, rich people, like the Vanderbilts were on it. It's kind of like the Titanic, but in, right. you know, a few years later. So this huge ship goes down, but it did carry munitions. The Germans said, you're carrying war material, and this is this contraband, and we've got to do what we've got to do in order to win the war. That's what they're saying. So we're going to, you know, we're going to sink these ships. We're aware of this, and the British said it didn't, and but it did have, uh, did have uh, rifle cartridges. And, uh, uh, so anyway, the Germans kind of backed off out of that because there were about 130 Americans who died on that right. ship. So that was outraging, and, and um, so there was more people who were saying, um, there was more people saying, you know, we got to do something about this. We can't tolerate this. It's an act of war. And Wilson was still trying to stay neutral. Um, and then the Germans, they did, they backed off of that. But then in January 17, they declared unrestricted submarine warfare, which is because they were getting to a terrible position to, with the British blockade, specifically the British Navy blockading German ports. So they couldn't receive goods. They couldn't receive food or, um, and other things. And they were just starving. And this, this was, um, this wasn't going to last much longer. So, and, and at the same time, the Germans were torpedoing as many British ships and French ships as possible to, to make them um, give up soon to just prevent the supplies getting to them, and then they would have to force be forced to quit the war. So they backed, they, in January 17, they said, no, unrestricted warfare, we're just going to attack anything. This We have to do this. And that was that didn't sit well with Wilson. So that, you know, they're going to attack U.S. ships and all that. And they had attacked some U.S., some uh, merchant ships, and even some naval ships, and I can't think of the names offhand, and they, they attacked some... There's others. There's other uh, uh, incidents of that of being attacked by subs uh, for other for British ships or whatever. So um, they they did this. Uh, Germany did that, and then Germany also did what was um, called the Zimmerman Telegram. Germany also initiated that, where they sent a telegram, and the telegram system had been already um, tapped into by the British from the start of the war. And the Russians helped with this to provide intelligence, and the British naval intelligence already was reading these cables from like the beginning of the war and had decoded all the the codes and everything. So, and this is kind of like what happened in World War II. Uh, so the Germans, anyway, they were asking Mexico to join the war, and they even went ahead and, and started initiating talks with Japan. They said, Mexico, would you join if you attacked the United States, and we would help you out. You know, we'd mutually help each other, and you could get back this territory in the Southwest that you lost in the Mexican-American War, and Texas. I think included Texas or the Alamo and everything. So, you know, this was this came to light, and it was shown to Wilson, and this was like the the tipping point. You know, so you had these these two these two uh, policies that the Germans implemented that just backfired, and um, or initiatives, whatever that, that that just backfired, and then um, you know this this started the everything rolling towards war and selective service. All this was kind of thought about at the time, having a draft and all this. There was already. There was already a national defense uh, act. Me, let me let me interrupt. You know, they, yeah. there's the saying, yeah. "You don't mess with Texas." I guess that that might be part of it. Yeah, it's also you, you don't you don't mess with your producer, and then we have to take a short break, right? Yeah, we'll be I back understand. after these. We'll be yeah. back after these messages. You're listening to Cyberlaw Business Report only on WebmasterRadio.fm. Stay tuned for more of the Cyberlaw and Business Report after this brief recess for our sponsors. Ready to do a podcast for your business? Make that podcast elevate to enterprise level. Let WebmasterRadio.fm expedite and execute your podcast to build your brand and broaden your customer base. WebmasterRadio.fm has worked with the world's biggest tech brands, Google, Yahoo, and Bing 
and have worked with fast-growing brands like ShipStation and GoDaddy. Now it's your turn. Contact brasco at wmr.fm and rush your enterprise-level podcast into production at a very reasonable rate. Email brasco at wmr.fm. Content Marketing World 2018 comes to Cleveland, Ohio, September 4th through the 7th. Learn more at contentmarketingworld.com. Content Marketing World 2018 is the one event where you will learn and network with the best and brightest in the content marketing industry. Content Marketing World will have over 120 sessions in work. It's time once again to get ready for the 35th Annual Miami Book Fair, November 11th to the 18th. Learn more at miamibookfair.com. Over 500 authors will be coming in from all over the world to read their books, answer questions for the audience, and sign autographs. Award-winning luminaries confirmed to attend this year include novelists like Elliot Ackerman, Robert Olin Butler, Ingrid Rojas Contreras, and Deborah Dean. Nonfiction writers like Dr. Mark Agronin, Mohammed Al-Samwawi, Andrea Barnett, and Tina Brown. Celebrities like Justine Bateman, Steve Kornacki, Bill Press. These are just a few of the confirmed 500 authors scheduled to appear at the 2018 Miami Book Fair, November 11th to the 18th. Check out the full schedule of events right now at MiamiBookFair.com. That's MiamiBookFair.com. Blog, blog, blog. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're the talk of the town. WebmasterRadio.fm. Thanks for listening. WebmasterRadio.fm. We're everywhere. The best gavel-to-gavel legal news and information on the net is right here. This is the Cyber Law and Business Report, only on WebmasterRadio.fm. And we're back, and we're we're talking about World War One, and uh, and really, what what lessons can we draw from it? Um, we have as our guest Jonathan Casey. He's the director of archives and Edward Jones Research Center at the National World War One Museum and Memorial in Kansas City, Missouri, and um, so. We only have a little bit of time left, and I guess what what are the when people come to your museum and they walk away, what are the the big takeaways, or what do you think people should you know as we have this centennial coming up next month in November, what 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 should people really know about World War One that you think maybe they they don't know? Uh, I think just um, our part in it, the if you're gonna say just the United States part, I think the overall efforts and. Um, uh, what was involved in 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 fighting this this war, and not just a, from the military point of view, not just military operations, which we uh, explain a lot. Uh, we show a lot of that, but just the 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 um, civilian side, how it's affected, just the people who aren't weren't the the soldiers and all, what they were doing as part of the war effort in supporting it, and then there were those who didn't support it. There was dissent, you know. There was um, that was there. That was a part of the whole experience. But um, I think it's just um, it's it's a it's a complicated story, um, and what people kind of understand maybe that the uh, uh, politicians have too much power. They just they they would just be needing to have some type of a uh, control on them, and and that's what you know we think within our system we could do that. But we we've ended up in other conflicts. We thought. You know, this would be the war to end all wars. People were saying that just to be right. idealistic, I think, and, and to be hopeful. And you'll see that, and you know, you see the phrase "the war to end war," and that was more like this would be so devastating, we would we would get smart, you know, the human race, and say this is we can't keep doing this. We're going to destroy ourselves. And so that that 
phrase is kind of around even um, prophetically even before the war. But I think coming out of it, there was a there was a legitimate attempt to try to solve some problems, and there was this uh, League of Nations came out of the war that would be today's uh, United Nations that came out of World War II, and um, just some way of trying to control um, um, these uh, the activities these these um, uh, military activities and and these. Um, Things I mentioned, like the arms race, and somehow just to control, put put controls on, them. and they and there was success with that. With actually with um, in naval with naval ships, right. warships, there was there were controls put on those. There was a treaty signed in the 20s that can that contained the size of these ships because these were these are some of the big weapons of war at the time. These dreadnoughts, these huge warships, and all their armaments and everything. So there was some control put on that. And after World War One, there was control put on the Germans speci- specifically and trying to keep them as really so that they couldn't be another major military power um and you know things changed but i think i think people just the average person going through here just seeing that um all this happened and and that maybe if other if, if other decisions had been made if, if the politicians if the leaders had worked it out you know and not instead of going right to the um right to the weapons and right to having a, a military um a solution to something maybe they you know this could have happened but um and then you see uh, that yeah that's that, that's kind of what where wilson's coming from on you know yeah. we need a league of nations and what what's interesting what i what i find relevant today is that you have this i you know, one an idealistic intervention to an extent you know obviously there was an economic you know we we Germany was threatening our shipping channels. Um, yeah. But, you know, going in to make the world safe for democracy, that was part of Wilson's declaration of war. Um, yeah. And then you see this post-war view of Wilson, the 14 points, creating yeah. this international structure of the League of Nations yeah. and the United yeah. States as a leading actor on the world stage and working yeah. with, with, with alliances to help this happen. Right. And then right. you have um, a year later – the treaty can't get can't get confirmed right. in the Senate, and you see this there's this retrenchment of the United States. You know, should we be on the world stage? Should we just you know focus on yeah. our borders? And this yeah. you know belief and distrust at the same time of these international yeah. institutions, as we see this week, as at the United Nations, with you know President yeah. Trump's speech, and, <laughs> and and so it, you know it it's almost yeah. it's full I circle. Know. It's full circle. Yeah, that's a good point to make. What's in contemporary. What's happening now? What's what's uh, so to try to make? We talk about making the war relevant, and uh, you know how is it relevant to today? Well, there's the thinking. Now we're back in almost that same thinking about nationalist thinking and focusing, like you just said, focusing on us or whatever country. And I think Trump, President Trump, said, you know, it's okay. Everybody else, that's uh, you know, they have to think about themselves first. I think right. they, you know what what's important to them, and 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 turning aside. European Union and all that, um, and I just uh, I think I mean what why we have the EU and why we have NATO and all that was a way of trying to control these these military impulses, you know that that occurred throughout history. I mean these people looking back over hundreds of years and saying that this, it's not working, and and the wars got more and more destructive. World War II ends with nuclear weapons, and you right. know, the next step is let's have a third world war, which is nuclear weapons. Right. And you mentioned, you know, the whole world war to end all wars. And I saw some quote that the the only people who have seen the end of the war are the dead. You know, they're yeah, the only ones yeah. who will see no more war. Yeah. And yeah. um, you know, yeah. it will happen. And uh, so we only have like two minutes left. And if you could sure. um, just 
single out. Well, who was your favorite hero of the war? And by the way, I uh, should note, speaking of Missouri, the only yeah. U.S. president to serve in World War One was President Truman. Was Harry Truman? You're right. Yeah. yeah. But, but yeah, if you Harry had to Truman. One hero, since we only have a minute left. Well, if, who would you pick? Uh, um, uh, that's difficult. And I mean, there's you know, they're the the ones that are show that their prowess in battle or something, you know, like a, like an Alvin York or their, their skills right. are like, we have, we have a medal of honor recipient, John Barkley was from, uh, from Missouri. And uh, he did to uh, be awarded the medal of honor shows courage and everything like that. And that's, that's necessary. Um, uh, and maybe Harry Truman is, is a good example. I mean, it's somebody, he did his part. I think there's so many heroes in a way we don't like to use that word. It's just so many people who did serve, did their duty, did their gave it their all, you know, and just and were wanting to. It's interesting, but so many people just wanted to go back to civilian life. I think then, the, kind of all the heroes. It's kind of like the greatest generation for World War One. Then you know these people went and did right. their duty, and millions of men and women and came back and said, you know, I want to just continue with my life and and build a life and help build the country. Um, so they could be seen as as heroes or as uh, obviously upstanding citizens. And um, you know that's a. Uh, I think that's that's important, very important. Uh, but Truman is, to someone known, Truman is good, a good example that he did his part. He came back and and uh, built his life and his career, but then served and uh, you know as on all kinds of positions, and the highest being the president. And he had a he had to deal with very serious issues of war and peace and and the, and everything we were talking about in the creation of this new world post. You know, this nuclear, the post World War II nuclear world, and all. So, right. I, he's 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 one. He would be a good example. But I just think everybody. I think everyone who 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 served honorably and you know and and made it through and uh, those and you think about those who didn't either. So, um, uh, I guess as to use the word hero, like I said, we don't really use that. It's just it's just something more of like from what you think about from movies or something. You know, sure. hero, but. But but we want to we try to honor everybody in their service, right. you know. Here, that's, and, that's the and point. I, and know. I guess particularly the dead. And I'll give yeah, the last yeah. words to the the poet. Um, we are the dead. Short days ago, we lived, felt dawn, saw sunset glow, loved and were loved, and now we lie in Flanders Field. Mm-hmm. So I want to thank you very much um, for. Um, helping us try to get our arms around this this big topic, and, and good luck with your yeah. centennial celebrations. It, it is an yeah, important war, and then there's you know there's a lot to it. There's a great PBS um, series on it, uh, right. the Great War. Right. It's a right. three part um, series over six hours, which I highly recommend. And um, so best of luck to you uh, in the memorial. I hope to get out there at some point. And well, thank um, you. so thank you very much for your time. And You're uh, welcome. And uh, we have links to the website and the Twitter account for right. the memorial. And uh, so as we reach the centennial, just maybe take some time to learn a little bit about this very important moment in American history. Thank you very much. Um, we'll be back next week with another edition of Cyber Law and Business Report. Follow us on Twitter at Cyber Law Radio and on the web at Cyber Law radio.wordpress.com and as always check out the Internet Law Center at internetlawcenter.net this is Bennett Kelly have a great week thank you the opinions expressed on this program are those of the guests and hosts and do not necessarily reflect those of webmasterradio.fm's management or sponsors 
any rebroadcast or redistribution without authorized consent of webmasterradio.fm is prohibited. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on your Memorial Day barbecue, all in the Kroger app. Get half gallons of delicious Kroger milk for $1.29 each. Then get flavorful Tyson Natural Boneless Chicken Breasts for two forty nine dollars a pound, all with your card and a digital coupon. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details.